invite you all to stand with me as we pray to read from God's word. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 6. The words will be on the screen, uh, but it's helpful as well for you to pull out a Bible and to look right there at it. So if you don't have one, if you reach right underneath your seat, um, you can get one there. Turn to page 564 if you're reading from one of the Bibles that we have. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. And it reads like this. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the splinter Uh, Let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your, your, your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, would you remind us that as we read your word, um, you wrote it. For us, God, not our neighbor, not the person that we have beef with, but for us, Father. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't try to defend ourselves against your word or think more about how it applies to somebody else than it does to us. Uh, Would you remind us that you're not just some man with a knife that we have to guard ourselves against, uh, but you're a surgeon with a scalpel, Father. Um, We need to lay back and trust you. So I pray uh, that you would remind us that your word is not here to harm us, but it's here to heal us, Father. So we ask that you would heal us today as we sit under your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your seat. Corey, can you hand me that that water? Hypocrisy. tends to hide in hearts that I think genuinely want to be helpful. Hypocrisy can grow up in a heart that starts out wanting nothing more than to help other people. Um, I'm 33 years old, and um, since I was 22, I've served uh, as a pastor in some way, shape, or form. So I've been responsible for routinely preaching and teaching God's word for probably the past 11 uh, years now. And um, four and a half years ago, I kind of hit a place that was a game changer for me. Um, I was getting close to what I felt was burnout at the last church that I was a part of. And uh, my wife and I got a chance to go to D.C. for four and a half months. And so while being on sabbatical for those four and a half months, um, It was the first time in my adult life that as I looked out on the next few months, 
I didn't have to prepare anything from God's word to teach anybody. So I woke up one morning, sat down with my Bible, got my coffee out. And as I looked and just stared at the pages and tried to pray, it felt awkward. I was used to praying that God would help me read his word in order to teach somebody else. But now without anybody to teach, um, I, I guess I kind of felt what like an empty nester would feel like, right? You spend so much of your time trying to raise your kids and you find out that your relationship with your spouse really revolved around your kids. And now when your kids are gone, you just kind of feel like things are empty. That's how I felt with me and God. I felt like, oh, I don't have anybody else to teach. There's tons of stuff that I can pray about, but it just felt weird. It felt like trying to sign a check with your offhand. I didn't know what to do. And I realized that for years of my life, um, I had confused being able to come up with uh, pithy explanations for God's word for personal engagement with his word. Four and a half years ago, I realized that I was a hypocrite and I was spiritually dry on the inside. Do you know what that feels like? Have you ever felt that way? I think when it comes to the danger of hypocrisy, trying to help people, trying to tell them what God wants us to do, um, I think there are two extremes in the world that we live in, right? So you may find yourself, you lean more to one side than the next. The first one is this. Um, You're so scared of being called a hypocrite that you would just rather not judge anybody, right? So there are folks that you kind of live with, all right, I'm I'm just going to live and let live. I'm not going to tell anybody else what they've done is wrong. I know that I'm a mess myself, so I don't have anything to tell folks. And this is pervasive in our day and age. We kind of live with this live and let live. And I think it comes from, we've all seen the dangers of prematurely judging folks. We've all seen how Christians who are supposed to be the proponents of forgiveness and grace that's found in Christ, how sometimes uh, Christians have been the most judgmental, unforgiving bunch. So we think Uh, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm just not going to judge anybody else. I'm not going to tell them what they should do. And one of the pros or the advantages of this is that when people come around you, um, they genuinely feel loved and accepted. There's a sense of unity. You're never confused with being condescending or judgmental. But if that's the pro. Here's the danger. Uh, People feel accepted when they should be corrected by the way that they live. You know, most of the baptisms that have taken place in the life of our church have not been from folks that didn't grow up in church at all. It's been from a bunch of folks that were like, I grew up in church my whole life, and people just let me live how I wanted to live. And then I heard about the gospel, and I found out that Though I was in church, I was actually on my way to hell, and it was somebody that came alongside and corrected me. So the danger in I don't want to be a hypocrite 
is you can actually lead people to feeling like they're safe when they're really not. That's the folks that say, I don't want to judge anybody. But then there's those of us that uh, if there's a group that doesn't like to judge anyone, um, there's a group of folks, and it's extreme here, they like to judge everyone. And it's not bad. It's a, I genuinely want to be helpful, and I've seen that um, it's so much easier to see sin in you. And I see it clearly, right? As clear as clear as the like big E on the eye charts when you go in to, to get your eyes checked. You see it so clearly and people want to help. And the pro of this is that um, it actually can lead to a church being more holy. It can lead to people who think that they're safe that are not actually meeting the Lord Jesus. The danger of this is, um, is that uh, it can be hypocritical. And it can, if abused, turn a church into the kind of place where everybody's sinning, but nobody wants to share it because nobody wants to feel condemned. And so you have a church full of people that are hiding what's really wrong with them. It can create a church that doesn't feel loving or accepting. It can create the kind of church that crushes the weak faith of people that are really trying hard. It seems like there's a lot more cons on this side than, than that side. But the reality is there's dangers on both sides. If we judge too harshly, we run the risk of pushing people away. But if we don't judge at all, we run the risk of them feeling close to us but being very far from Jesus. So the question is, how do we really help? How do we help people? How do you and I practically help people to grow, to be more and more like Christ when we ourselves are messed up? We go to God's word. Luke 6. I think Jesus is answering this very question. And here's what I love. Uh, The wisdom of God um, is so good that he's going to set up the context in a way where nobody can say, I'm not the kind of person that judges somebody else. Because regardless of which side that you fall on, um, you may be live and let live uh, until the way that somebody lives is not letting you live the way that you want to live. Until you find yourself in conflict. And when we find ourselves in conflict, then everybody finds themselves being guilty of this hypocritical kind of judgment that doesn't represent Jesus at all. And so in Luke 6, as Jesus is expounding on what the Christian life looks like, he gets to a section where he tells you and I that because of the way that God loves people that are ungrateful and evil, you and I are supposed to love our enemies and forgive them, people that do us wrong. He's trying to prompt us to do good towards them. And that all sounds good in theory until you feel like you're continually taken advantage of and you're getting the short end of the stick by forgiving people and just letting things go. You really need to point out where they've messed up. You're tired of your spouse doing the same thing over and over again and you just really need to correct them. 
You're tired of the relationships that you're involved in where people continue to offend you in the same way and you just really need to correct them and tell them what's wrong. And Jesus starts off with these words. Verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. I want to stop right here uh, just to let us know on the outset, this seems like a prohibition. It seems like it tells us that we aren't to judge, that we are to kind of live this live and let live way. Uh, But let me just kind of stop us right here. And uh, this is not a prohibition against casting any sort of judgment. The Bible is very, very clear on that. So this is not an excuse to get out of jury duty because you say, well, 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 I'm a Christian and the Bible says that I'm not supposed to judge. The Bible is very, very clear that God has established the laws of the land in place. And it's helpful for Christians to involve themselves in places where justice and fair, right and true justice need to be had. This is not saying that as Christians... You and I aren't to judge one another. Jesus continually through the Bible calls for this judgment. This is not advocating a moral relativism that we're just to live and let live. Matthew 7, Jesus judges false prophets. John 7, Jesus commands people to make a right judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus tells a church to pronounce judgment on an unrepentant sinner that finds that finds himself in their church. 1 Corinthians 6, Jesus tells a church to judge people in the church amongst disputes that they have. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells the church to judge for themselves what he says. In Galatians 1, Paul tells a church to judge the type of preaching that they hear. And if it's not the real gospel, then Paul's saying, fire the preacher. The Bible calls for judgment, nor is this saying there's a leniency that if you don't want God to judge you at all, then so long as you don't judge, you'll never have to stand in front of God and be judged. Hebrews 9.27 clearly states that one day you and I will stand in front of God and be judged for our sin. So the question is, if this isn't advocating, if this isn't a prohibition, what is it? I feel like this is a prescription to cure us of the hypocritical judgment that you and I have, especially when we find ourselves in conflict. Here's why I say that. It starts off with these two don't do's, right? Don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't condemn or you'll be condemned. But then it goes to positive things. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given back to you. Have you ever read a prescription and it starts off and says, don't take this on an empty stomach, but take two pills three times per day for the rest of your life, that sort sort of thing? This is a prescription trying to tell us, all right, this is the best way for you to ingest this. This is meant to cure us of a hypocritical kind of judgment. And it doesn't just give us instructions on how we're to start, but it tells us what to do. And the sense is it's, it's trying to nudge you and I to do good. 
It's trying to nudge you and I when we find ourselves in conflict with folks and we want to bring the hammer down to lead off, to be eager, to be chomping at the bit, not to bite folks' heads off, but to offer forgiveness. You and I are, are not to cease to be men. But this is to help us not to presume to be God. And here's what I mean by that. When, when it tells us not to judge or not to condemn, I think what he's trying to get at is this. Um, you and I don't have the power to eternally judge or condemn anybody. Right? We can't hasten the condemnation of God on folks any more than we can rush rain to come out of rain clouds. But do you know what we can do? We're like weathermen who tell a story of there is a storm coming. There is a judgment coming. And I've got an umbrella and I can walk you to shelter. That the way that you and I forgive helps people to know that there is a God that really forgives when we start to talk about the forgiveness of God. So here Luke, he's, he's trying to start off and he's trying to say, especially when we find ourselves in, in conflict, the propensity should be to forgive, right? Not to ignore the fault, not to say that's okay when it's not okay because it's not okay. But it's to say that was wrong but I forgive you, and I'm not going to hold it against you. And the reason why I think that it's him trying to prompt you and I to, to do good is that he ends this with an incentive. Look here at the end. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Um, this scripture on a tithing envelope is out of place. This doesn't have to do with money. This has to do, listen, with forgiveness. It's trying to give you and I the incentive that when we forgive in the way that God has forgiven us, uh, human generosity is met with a divine generosity and God's divine Generosity dwarfs our gen generosity. Have you ever been to Chipotle and you ask for chicken, right? And so you ask and it comes down the line and you've got the overscrupulous attendee that's trying to be employee of the month. And so he scoops, you know, five pieces of chicken. And if that sixth one falls in, you know, it's in the handbook. You can't give a sixth one. So he, he brushes it off and. Um, you want to ask for more chicken, but you don't want to pay $16 for more chicken. So you're like, yo, I'll just kind of take it. What's being said right here is, listen, listen. Um, God's forgiveness is not commensurate with your efforts. God's forgiveness is not dished out like this. God's forgiveness towards us is a healthy scoop. Then it's pressed down nice and tight so you can get it into all the cracks. And then he shakes it so that there's more room. And then he puts more on it. And then by the time you come down the line, you don't have a bowl big enough to accept the forgiveness of God. So you have to take out your shirt and, and yeah, just forgiveness, just all, all there. Listen, listen, listen. 
I say this because sometimes in trying to make sure that we're not falling into prosperity theology, you and I can tend to make God cheap and frugal. And God is not cheap and frugal. God is God is generous. And the reason why you and I have to know that God is generous is to be reminded that when you and I offer somebody that has offended us forgiveness, we're not the ones getting the short end of the stick. It's so ironic that Christians who talk about a God that is worthy to be praised when it comes to exemplifying his character thinks that they're taking L's. It is an amazing thing for you and I to be able to live like God and offer forgiveness to people that have genuinely hurt and offended us. He starts off prompting you and I to be helpful. Don't pull away. Don't step back. You and I genuinely look towards how can we help those that may be caught up in a sin, especially when it's a sin towards us. But then, after he corrects our intent, makes us those that are intentionally helpful, those that really want to help, those that want to lead folks to be more and more like Christ, uh, he gives us a caution, right? Because we all know good intentions um, don't determine your destination. Good intentions are no match for bad directions. Try as hard as you want to, but if you leave from here, Atlanta, and go east, you're never going to make it to California. Unless you go all the way around the whole world, but y'all know the point that I'm trying to make. That's not what I'm trying to make. And so what he does is he tells a humorous story um, that's really meant to grip you and I. We've been offended. Somebody sins against us. There's conflict. We want to do good to them, and we want to help them. And genuinely, we think that the way that we can be most practically helpful is to lead them and to guide them into what they need to do. And then he says this, um, can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Um, There are certain combinations that don't go well together. Um, So I've learned that alcohol and Advil um, will tear your stomach lining. Bleach and vinegar will create a, a type of gas that is very harmful. Brussels sprouts and fill in the blank. Just There are combinations that don't work. Jesus brings up one right here that doesn't work. A blind tour guide. Now, a blind tour guide is unhelpful. A blind tour guide of the Grand Canyon is destructive. And so the picture that he paints here is even if somebody has the intent to help, even if a blind guide really has the intent to help and to lead other people down paths with so many pitfalls, 
it's not that he's just going to be unhelpful. It's that he's going to be destructive or he's going to be guilty of what's called involuntary manslaughter. Dr. Conrad Murray, eight years ago, in an attempt to help, gave his patient a prescription for a drug that seemed to alleviate his um, uh, illness, but it killed him. And so eight years ago, Dr. Conrad Murray was charged with the death, involuntary manslaughter of Michael Jackson. And at his court case, you know what he did? He appealed his intent. I tried to help. I didn't mean to. And you know what they said? Um, that's why we're not going to charge you with murder. Murder is all about intent. Involuntary manslaughter is all about the events. It has nothing to do with your in intent. We'll throw that out. It's this is what you did. Someone was killed as a result of your action. The act was either inherently dangerous or it was done with a reckless disregard of their life. And you should have known better. So for all of us to say, no, no, I really just want to be helpful in the way that I lead. If they've done this wrong, I really want to be helpful. And so I'm going to tell them and I'm going to use all this to help them. That's all well and good if you have clear enough eyes to see. But if you don't, if you are blind, then any attempt that you have at being practically helpful to people will end up being very, very harmful. So he ends with this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. What he's trying to get at there is, um, it's been said so many ways, but this is the best way that I've heard it. Uh, you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. So the Bible talks about you and I watching both our doctrine and our life. And so many times when we talk about people being led astray, especially in circles that pride themselves on being biblically faithful and we're committed to the truth, we spend so much time and we watch our doctrine and we draw land, or, or lines in the sand about folks that have the right truth and we disregard the more practical ways of how folks live their life. And what Jesus is saying right here is that hypocrisy um, has a bigger blast radius than just your life. A hypocritical life will affect the people that follow you. So as we find ourselves in conflict, you and I are to know that hypocrisy is a very, very real thing. And so I'm just going to say this right now. Uh, this message is not for anybody else except for you. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to your spouse. I'm not talking to your neighbor. I'm talking to you. And what makes it incredibly hard is that um, I'm talking to myself. So, it's a, so just know that as I say all of this stuff, I'm talking to me because I know that I'm guilty of the exact same thing. So we have the right intent. We want to help. We know our propensity to be blind. 
what it, what is it that you and I should give our primary attention to if we actually want to help people? Jesus gives us the instructions right here. Verse 41. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter that is in your brother's eye. I think here's the point that he's trying to make. Attention to personal holiness precedes any attempts at practical helpfulness. Attention to personal holiness, your holiness, the way that you relate to God, it comes before and it trumps any attempts at you trying to be helpful for anybody else. He starts off and he tells us to give attention, right, a force focus on what goes on with us. Deuteronomy 17, this is a great chapter for you to read. It's the instructions that God gives to both priests and kings. And in verse 20, it's this, that before they take office, they're to take God's law. So think the first five books of the Bible, and they're supposed to write it and transcribe it. Why? So that they can know how to share with folks? No. Verse 20 says, uh, God's saying, I want you to write it so that you don't lift yourself up against your brother. I want you to write it so you work it down into your soul, and as you write it, you feel woefully inequipped to stand up and talk to anybody else about what God wants because you see just how far short you fall. Our tendency is towards this hypocrisy that sees our faults in somebody else and wants to judge them more harshly than we do in ourselves. Look at verse 41. It, he starts off and he kind of gives this same picture, but there's a pro, uh, progression of sorts. Here's the first one, right? Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye? But look, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye. There's a type of hypocrisy that has great sight, but awful sensitivity. It's easy for you to notice the faults and the flaws in everybody else. And it bothers you and it irks you, but you don't notice how those same things are so true of your own soul. And let me tell you, let me just just warn all of us, us to step back and just to see, you know, um, social media lends itself for you and I to do this so well. Because we can do it in the comfort of our own home. Constantly, day and night, constantly look at the things that are wrong, the people that said this. And not only can we do it comfortably and constantly, but as we join into the mob and talk about the specs in everybody else's eyes, You've got a group of folks that co-sign all the things that you say. And so it's easy for us to constantly feel that you're right. Whenever we spend time and constantly talk about the sin of other people. And seldom talk about the sin that's in our own heart. We can be very 
very sure that we are those that have great sight and awful sensitivity. Not only that, verse 42, and here's how I say how it progresses. He just goes from seeing the speck that's in everybody else's eyes to starting to talk about it. Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. Um, There's a way to avoid repentance that's just to completely ignore your sin and everybody else's even. Here's another way to avoid a repentant repentance. You and I can be so busy explaining repentance that we end up escaping from the need to repent. That we engage and we feel the pleasures of the righteousness of God as we see people turn from their sin We experience pleasure without experiencing the pain of turning from our own sin. And this is the danger of being insightful and smart and critical and perceptive and convincing and persuasive is that it's so easy to look and to see and to call and convince and to be viewed as spiritually mature because you can explain and delve into all of this sin without ever engaging with God for yourself. And Jesus tells us to be very cautious of it. The story that we read was of King David, a man after God's own heart, was kingly, who murdered a man's wife, took her, and for all that we can tell, he seemed fine with it until David or, or until the prophet Nathan comes in and tells him a story of a guy that didn't steal somebody's wife, didn't kill anybody, but he took his sheep. And David has the gall to stand up and to say that man should die. Isn't it so easy to see the same things that we struggle and struggle with in other people and be so bothered by? I would argue that oftentimes the things that we are most bothered about by other people are things that are going on inside of our own heart that we want to deny or we're frustrated with them so much that we would much rather deal with them in in somebody else and get the pleasure of removing wood from somebody's eyes while neglecting that we have a red wood in our own. Charles Bridges says this, for how awful it is to appear a minister without really being a Christian. Directions are no good if you never follow them. Your attempts at helpfulness are no good if you never apply them for yourself. So it's easy to kind of come to this point and to feel like, see, John, I'm so messed up. That's why I just want to step back. All right. I really need to work on myself before I start to call anybody else out on their sin or to help them out. And we want to escape. And I just want you to know that's not the solution either, because look at how this ends. This is not a prohibition against judgment. It's a prescription to cure the hypocrisy that exists in our life. And so what he does is he doesn't just tell us to stop. 
He tells us to change our priorities. He tells us to reorder. Look at how this text ends. It says this, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter that is in your brother's eye. It's not that calling folks out on things that they've done wrong is a, 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 a right or a wrong thing. What Jesus is trying to help us see is that no, no, it's all about right and wrong timing. It's not right or wrong. It's first, second. And so when he tells us to do this first, I think the best word picture that I got of this was from a guy by the name of John Stott. And John Stott says this, you and I need to learn how to treat men like mirrors and treat mirrors like men. And so here's what that means. When we look in the mirror and we see ourselves guilty of sins or things that we've done wrong, do you know what we have? Reasoning, justification, excuses, motives. Well, it was a long day or it was this. And do you know what we tend to do with ourselves? We tend to be generous with ourselves. We tend to give ourselves grace. We tend to give ourselves slack. And so what John Stott's trying to say is you would do better to take the attitude that you use in the mirror and treat people with that because at the end of the day, um, you have insight into one person's sin in this world. And do you know whose that is? Yours. Based on God's word, we all know that we all have the potential to do terrible things. So we know that based on what we read, but you and I know from personal experience just how far down deep it goes in our own soul. And so if I'm going to give anybody the benefit of the doubt, it's going to be somebody that I don't have the hard data on. It's going to be the person who I am in conflict with and for me to know how easy it is for me to play myself or to trick myself or to convince myself that I have the right motives and intentions when I really don't. And then you and I would do well to treat mirror or men like or treat mirrors like men. That the way that you and I can speculate and pick apart motives and reasons for why people did what they did and have a tendency to distrust the first thing that they say, the excuses, the reasons why they do things, what he's saying is that you and I would do, learn to do well to do that with ourselves. To not let ourselves off the hook easily. And he uses this picture, this word picture, of an oak tree in somebody's eye and a splinter in somebody else's eye uh, to help you and I know uh, that left to ourselves, you and I are very big sinners in need of major surgery. An oak tree in your eye is not an outpatient procedure where you expect to make it home by dinner. It's I have to strap myself down to the table. And I really have to let the doctor go to work on me, on the inside. But then, 
I'm not disqualified just because I had a bunch of wood in my eye. I'm told to get back up and go and help somebody else. And here's the beauty of that, that when you and I distrust ourselves, go to God's word, allow him to really do the work on us, or at least consider it before we approach anybody else who we're in conflict with about things that they've done to us. Do you know what it does? It increases our faith, y'all. It helps us to realize that this God wants to use big sinners to assure little sinners that he can heal. Not that anybody's little, but it's meant so that as you and I deal with what's going on inside of our heart, as you and I look inside of our hearts and says, no, I'm guilty of the same hypocrisy. And based on that sin, me calling myself a Christian, me meant to reflect the image of God in the world, me living in a way, casting out harsh judgment on people that I should show grace, not reflecting God's image and beauty in the world, me saying something untrue about God, I deserve punishment because I'm, I'm lying about this guy. In the beauty of the gospel, what we sit back with, what lies at the heart of all the things that we do, is that God sent his son into the world. And when it came to judging humanity, Jesus was perfect and sinless, so we didn't have to wait to take any logs out of his eye. He could have been very prompt and speedy in the way that he enacted God's judgment on all of us. But John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And John 3.17 tells us this. God didn't send his son into the world the first time to judge the world or to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Jesus, who could have came in and announced God's judgment on all of us, instead came in and absorbed God's judgment for us. When he died on the cross, what he did was he took the payment. What he did was he took the death in the same way that David's son took the punishment of his sin. Christ took our place, died on the cross. And when he rose, it showed that God had accepted the sacrifice for his sin. And what he does is he announces his free and full forgiveness to all of us that put our trust in him. He announces his free and full, his pressed down, shaken together, running over forgiveness that regardless of how much you withdraw, you will never bankrupt him. He announces that to all of us. So now you and I, whenever we're offended or hurt or find ourselves in conflict with anybody, we don't ignore what's going on. We don't act like it's not there. We don't minimize it. We accept it for what it is. And we forgive. Even prior to an apology. An apology is not a prerequisite for forgiveness. 
you can forgive without somebody apologizing first. So what we do is we step back and forgive. And it gives us the freedom to see ourselves for who we are. Not to have to lie about what we've done. Not to have to minimize what we've done. But to see ourselves for what we are. To forgive. And this type of engagement with our own sin. Our engagement with our own flaws. It doesn't just build our faith. But it increases our sympathy. As we go at other people that have offended us. Or been so mastered by sin. That they can't see their own flaws. The reason why I say this is. Removing a splinter from somebody's eye. Is a delicate procedure. You need to have care. You don't go in with an axe because you'll cut their eye out. You go in with a scalpel and it takes care. There's a concern, there's a sympathy that comes when it comes to addressing things in people. And having been forgiven of much sin, do you know what it does to us? It fills us with sympathy as we approach people. It fills us with this heart of care and concern that realizes that, listen, people are seldomly scolded into obedience to God. Jesus could have came and announced judgment, and he does very clearly talk about God's judgment. And there are times where people are so hardened that Jesus uses harsh words to wake them up and to help them see the peril that they're in. But then there are people that already have tender hearts. And Jesus comes alongside them. And he looks at a woman who's been chasing satisfaction or fulfillment in men. And he's standing at the well with an outcast woman who's on her fifth husband. They're not married. She lives together. And Jesus doesn't scold her, but with care and concern, he says, you're trying to get thirsty, or you're trying to fill your thirst. And let me tell you, there's a better way. I know all about you. I know what you've done wrong. But there's a better way. And with care and sympathy and compassion, he offers her this forgiveness. And do you know what she does? You know the first thing that she does? She runs back to her village. A place that she was outcast. She was the big sinner. And what she does is she tells everybody, come meet somebody who told me everything about me, but still loved me. And God uses big sinners to bring other people back to him. We would do well to learn that when we find ourselves in conflict and offended by folks, sometimes it's just those calm words that only come from a heart that's really had to deal with that same sin. That realizes sometimes it's not malicious. Sometimes it's not people that are just trying to do wrong. 
Sin may very well be in the mix. But let's remember that sometimes sin masters people and they are blind to it. And let's just balance our scolding with sympathy. How do we do that? I've got three quick ways as I'm done. The very first one is this. Invite God to search out your heart. Invite God to search out your heart. Um, When we find ourselves in conflict with folks and we see very clearly what they've done wrong, um, it's easy for us to look at ourselves quickly and say, ah, look, I didn't see anything wrong. All right, now I can go and tell them. Uh, But I just want you to know this. A clear conscience is not the same thing as a clean conscience, right? Um, You can have a clear conscience, and it can just be because your heart is calloused and hard, not because you're clean. So David says in Psalms 139, he says this, look, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me into the everlasting way. And so what he says is I can look at myself and I can miss things, but God, you don't miss a thing. God, search me. So when we talk about spending time with the Lord, getting up early to sit and to pray and to invite him in, it's not just a checkbox. This is vital. If you do not do this, there's so many things in your own heart and your life that you'll miss. And if you don't give attention to being personally holy, you will never be practically helpful. I want you to hear this. A prayerless Christian is a hypocrite in the making. If you do not pray, that is the most active preparation that you can have to being a hypocrite. But praise God that if we pray, that if we sit down and we read God's word, and every time we read God's word, we say, this is about me. God, change me. God, fix me. God, help me. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and make us those that can be very practically helpful. That's one. Here's two. Um, Share your testimony often and be honest. What I love about the Apostle Paul is he seems to have a pretty good relationship with Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Acts. But Paul doesn't go to Luke and tell him, hey, Luke, do you remember all that stuff that I did, you know, trying to kill people and all that stuff? Would you just kind of scratch that out so that I look better? Um, Paul lets Luke be very honest about his story because there is a type of glory that God gets when he turns a murderer into a martyr. There's a type of glory that God gets as we look at our lives and are honest about the ways that we've fallen and are clear about what God has done. That's us just eager to share the achievements of God. It's us being reminded and reminding others, I was in need of grace and God provided it in an abundance. Lastly, take advantage of seasons of rest. If you're in here and you're responsible for teaching, if you're a parent and you're responsible for teaching your kids how how to walk with with the Lord, um, if you're a pastor or a pastor in training, if you're a 
any shape or form. You feel yourself responsible for disseminating the truth of God's word. Find places where you can routinely come and be refreshed and fed. This is one reason why this is so important, where week in and week out, you and I can come and hear from God's word. This is intentionally why we do things the way that we do here at the church, where the constant is God's word is up here. The faces are going to change because we all need times where we're not responsible for teaching, but just sitting back and hearing and being reminded of God's grace. great pastor once said that it's not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister or a Christian, a holy Christian is an awful weapon in the hand of God. God's put us as a church because he wants us to be helpful in leading people towards him. And the best way that you and I can help anybody else is by giving attention to the personal holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But it is a holiness that we did not earn, one that was earned for us by Christ. So as we work for it, we are reminded that Jesus has already provided it, so he's going to finish his work in us. He's going to carry us all the way to the finish line. You and I only need to give our attention to pursue him towards that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, We pray that you would use it in our own hearts, Father. Um, We pray that, uh, that first and foremost, this would be practically helpful for us as a church, that you would use it in the relationships that are here in this church. Father, I pray that none of us would use your word um, as a way to exalt ourselves over our brothers or sisters, or to have them do our bidding. Father, I pray that we would use your word for what you intended it for, to create a peaceful, forgiving community that pursues holiness, that presents an amazing picture of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.